Okay, Kurt, here we go. Ready? Coming in three, two. Kurt, that's when you're supposed to start talking. Sorry, I was waiting for the one following the two. Oh, uh, yeah, you, you go on one, but it's it's imaginary. Okay. All right. All right, ready? Here we so go. Wait, uh, just wait, just to be clear, you want me to mm -hmm. go on one, but you're not going to say one. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Okay. I just tell myself, I'm, I'll just tell myself I'm going on two. That... <laughs> okay. All right. Well, why don't you just count me in and I'll start. Okay. All right. Coming in three, two. Welcome to the Being Known podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We're here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Kurt. Pepper. It's been a long time getting here. I am really excited. My goodness. Me too. And I'm excited not just about the stuff that we're going to talk about and the content, but I'm really excited also about being able to do this with you in particular. Um, we've been talking about this for a number of years and really eager to get started on this. Yeah. So Kurt, you know, you, you talk a lot about your work. I've, I've heard you say that your work um, lies at the intersection of interpersonal neurobiology and the gospel, to which I say, doesn't everyone's. <laughs> <laughs> So I think yeah, we'll, we will have people that are listening to this that will understand that with, with no problems. But I, I also think that if there's anybody listening to this that are my friends, they might be thinking, what does that mean? Right. So let's talk a little bit about interpersonal neurobiology. Um, yeah. You know, what is that? So there are a lot of scientific disciplines that have a stake in understanding what the mind is. And I'm a person you know, in, in my work as a psychiatrist, I also have a stake in that. I'm interested in what is the mind. If you go to see your orthopedic surgeon, you'd like to be confident that they know what a bone is and how it works. And you know, if it's not working well, what to do about it. You'd like to think that a psychiatrist might have some idea about the notion of the mind. And there are a lot of different disciplines in science uh, that could be neuroscience research, uh, research on the brain, research on relationships, research on attachment studies, like how human beings connect with one another. There's all kinds of disciplines that have a stake in this, but over the course of many years, no one had really ever come up with a common understanding of what the mind is. And my friend and colleague, Dan Siegel, now more than 15 years ago, endeavored to really get a better sense of what does it look like for us to come up with that kind of a working definition of the mind. And this notion of interpersonal neurobiology is the phrase that describes this collective field of scientific study in which we are looking at a number of different elements from scientific research that speak to what the mind is. And I think even more importantly, um, what does a healthy mind look like? What does it mean when our minds are flourishing? And we come to understand that the mind has a working definition that we'll eventually get into and talk an awful lot about. But I think for our listeners right now, the most important thing to understand is that our mind isn't just something that is to be equated with the brain. It's a lot more than that. It does have to do with my neurobiology. It has to do with the neuro 
chemical and biological activity of my brain and my body, but it also has a lot to do with how that is being shaped by my relational interactions. We come to find out that, gosh, the, the neurons, the wiring, the, the, the cells in my brain are affected in their firing patterns by the relational interactions that I have from the time that I'm born and then with my relationships now. And so this kind of collaborative effort of this scientific discipline of interpersonal neurobiology really looks at this combination of the brain and relationships and as they affect one another. So, you know, as we talked about this being known podcast that we're, you know, endeavoring on, um, we, we, we talked about the idea of this interpersonal neurobiology along with Christian spiritual formation. Um, so talk to me a little bit about uh, spiritual formation. You know, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, I think Pepper for me and for you, uh, we are followers of Jesus We're we, we believe in a God who's made the world and a God who loves us. And we acknowledge that we humans, uh, have a hard time, um, returning the favor as it were. We have a hard time loving God. I mean, some days I have a hard time even believing in God, right? Uh, if you look at my life. And, uh, but we, we do believe that with the coming of Jesus, with his life and his death and resurrection and ascension that we, we Christians talk about, um, that we are being called into a life of joy, a life of beauty, a life of uh, creating new things with each other and not, not just with the people that I like the most or that I'm connected to or I'm most like, but the people that I'm even different with. And that whole notion of formation in, in the language of Christian faith really refers to this idea that like our lives form us, right? The things that I believe form me. I, you know, I, I, I like to believe that I get to live independently and I'm making all of my own choices independent of what any, anybody else thinks or the emotional reactions of other people around me. When in fact, I'm being formed every day. I'm being formed by the social media that I consume. I'm being formed by my parents. Even if my parents are not even alive, I'm being formed by the memory of being formed by so many things. And so the question is that I have is, what are the things in the world that are going to form me, that are forming me? It's not a question of, am I being formed? I'm being formed. But what are the things that are going to form me? And Christian spiritual formation is really this notion that, you know, at the end of today, uh, you know, St. Paul, in uh, one of his letters to the church in Galatia, he wrote this one phrase where he said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, you take a look at that list of words, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, I really would love to be more like that. I'd love to be more loving, more kind, more generous, more gentle, more long-suffering. I, I want to be more that. I don't, I don't wake up in the day and say, like, today, I hope I'm more impatient by the end of the day. I hope I'm more irritable. Like, nobody, nobody wants that. Like, we, we want to be formed into people of great loving kindness and mercy and compassion, which is the essence of what the Christian gospel talks about, that God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit is forming us into these icons of beauty. And one of the beautiful things about interpersonal neurobiology 
is that when we study it, when we study these reactions, this interaction, this interplay between the mind and the, the, and the brain and relationships, we learn some things that point to what it means to be formed in a Christian way. We learn some things from the creation, from the neuroscience that we study. We learn some things that actually help and strengthen and infuse our capacity to be formed into people of greater loving kindness. And I think about the world that we live in with all of its fractures in many, many different ways today. And I think, gosh, I, uh, I, I can't think of a time when we uh, would more need the opportunity to be able to form, to be formed into those kinds of people. That's great. So wait, I'm, I'm going to say one more thing. Like, like I did, just to jump right into this, you know, we, you and I have talked about this, about how, and I, I really look forward to doing this with you. Mm -hmm. And I want to say that in the last, what has it been like eight years, maybe six, eight, I can't remember that we've known each other. Like, I just want to say it that feels my, a lot longer. My, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> like, look, remember, I'm a psychiatrist and I will do what I will on this podcast. So you just got to be careful. You just got to yes. be careful. I, I want to say uh, to our listeners uh, how grateful I am for the way my life in the last eight years has been formed by you has been formed by uh our friendship that uh you know we've we've shared a lot of uh, important moments and we've shared a lot of important um uh pieces of our lives with each other uh pieces that have been beautiful pieces that have been um gut-wrenchingly funny uh those may be the most important parts and uh, parts that we've shared with with each other, parts of our lives that are, uh, you know, less than beautiful, that are, you know, less uh, attractive. And I just want to say uh, that I'm just so grateful that um, that this whole notion of being formed uh, for me has included you. Um, it's just a really big deal to me. So I'm, I'm uh, much more grateful that we're getting to do this together. Uh, you know, it's a two-way street. I feel the exact same way. My relationship with you over the years has been... Um, so important. And, um, and I feel like it's really an embodiment of the work that we're talking about, right? Um, which, so, so there's, there's three things. There's the, the interpersonal neurobiology, there's Christian spiritual formation, and then there's telling our stories more truly, mm -hmm. which I think is what part of what you were just talking about, that relationship that we've had, where we've been able to, um, tell our stories truly to one another right. to understand our stories um, a little bit better through someone right. else's eyes so right. that we can understand the truth of the story. Because right. sometimes I think that we tell ourselves lies about our own stories, right? Right. All um, the time. So let's talk a little bit about that. What, how do we tell our stories more truly? Yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, first of all, just a, a definition of terms, we live in a world in which we, when we hear the word, what's true, what's, you know, we, we think of it in terms of, uh, well, what's true versus what's false. Is it true that one plus one is two? Yes. Uh, it's false that one plus one is three. That's a, you know, those are facts. And we say one thing is true. Another thing is not true. 
but we're also, and, and, and that's, that is, that is a way to understand what we mean by truth, what truth is, tell our stories more truly, like factually, mm-hmm. you know, I can tell you, yes, my birth date is September 12th. It's coming up, by the way, you, I'll, I'll look for your card in the mail or not. Um, um, Kurt, can I just stop you right there? Yeah. Mine was Tuesday and I, but you didn't tell receive, me. I have yet to receive even a happy birthday from you so wait you're wait yours is september 1st yes dude okay happy birthday but here's the thing i didn't know that well and and which means you go back and you look at your text thread i think you will see that i told you that when we record this particular podcast i will be a year older we had this whole back and forth you know this whole being known thing which by the way let me just let me just say this (laughs) So it's being known with Dr. Kurt Thompson, right? <laughs> I'm so important to be known that my name's not even on the title, right? So I'm feeling less and less known. <laughs> but wait a minute, but dude. September like you 12th, are going to be. Let me so... make sure to mark it down in my calendar and circle it. You aren't the only one that forgot my birthday, by the way. My mother of 89 years old forgot my birthday, but she probably but has said at a least, reason. Right. I said, I don't mind if you forgot my birthday. You were there. That's the important thing. <laughs> right. I mean, and she's so used to you just kind of being there. Like, I know, yes. like for her, every day is your birthday. I guess. Yes. I know. As well, it should be. Right. Not that, you know, not that you're that narcissistic, but, you know, that no. notwithstanding, this, this whole notion of telling our stories more truly is as much about telling our stories faithfully. So to be true to someone, for instance, to be true is to be faithful. The word truth in English comes from the older English word, Hmm. which is the word troth. And when we say that we pledge someone our troth, my troth in marriage, I'm pledging my faithfulness. And so to be true, in addition to it meaning what are the facts, it also means what is the faithfulness? What does it mean to tell my story faithfully? Hmm. And I know that, you know, some of the work that I do, and I mean, I think in our relationship too, there have been opportunities uh, for us to begin to talk about things. And I know that, for instance, there have been moments when I've shared things with you in which I was probably uh, aware that to do so was going to Uh, be a little anxiety provoking for me because I was about to reveal something to you that could, that would be potentially embarrassing. That would be shaming to me for you to Mm. see that. And so what that would mean is, is that I'm walking around with a part of my story that I keep buried Mm. part of my story that I keep out of my awareness. I'm not living very truly because I'm, I'm living as if this part of my story doesn't exist. That's not being right. very faithful to the story. And the reason I don't want to talk about it is because it's, there's too much shame wrapped up in that. But if I'm sitting with you and uh, I tell you part of this, I'm even having a memory of a particular thing that I shared with you in which like uh, the very act of saying this to you meant that I was not holding this by myself. And it allowed me to look at that part of my story with you together. It's like you, you, you're more like you're standing shoulder to shoulder with me. And we're both looking at the part of, you know, a particular part of my story that I really, really hate. Hmm. And, uh, 
the nature of what I'm seeing changes because I'm not looking at it by myself. And because I now know that you know this part of my story and you're not leaving the room, you're not walking out on me. It means that the very nature of my, what, what I've believed to be true about this part of my story, that this is a part that shouldn't be talked about. This is the thing that you should be ashamed of. Like that's what I believe is true. I should be ashamed and you should keep this under wraps. You shouldn't be talking about this. That's an unfaithful way to tell the story. Your presence enabling me to be known by you, which is, you know, it takes risk to do that. Enabling me to be known by you around these, this particular, these particular, you know, parts of my story actually enable my story to be told more truly. And the beautiful thing about this is that that shame is actively transformed by virtue of it being heard by you, by me being known by you. And it therefore is a more faithful rendition of that. That means that at the end of the day, I have more energy available to me to create new things because that energy is now not being bound up with me keeping that part of my story hidden and buried. I'm not burning energy doing that. I'm now, I now have energy available to do something different. And that all happens because you enable me to tell my story more truly. And that whole notion is a, I think is an example of what we mean at the essence of what it means for us to be known. We're being known by others so that we can tell our stories more faithfully to what is true. And this is where the notion I think of Christian spiritual formation comes in, in that one of the more important questions that I ask patients that I'm working with is, what is the story that you believe you're living in? Right, what, what's the story, that you, we, we, whether we know it or not, we all wake up every morning and head toward the shower with a sense of what my day is going to be like. I got things banging through my head. And in that moment, like I'm telling the story about my life and my day and how it's going to unfold. And, you know, I tell people that there are many days when I believe that I'm living in the middle of the gospel. I'm living in the middle of this time between Christ's first appearance and his second appearance. We're somewhere in the middle of that time frame. But, you know, invariably somewhere in my day, I'm going to live like I'm living in some other story. I'm going to like, because I'm going to lose my temper. I'm going to get irritable with somebody. I'm going to be immensely envious of, you know, somebody I'm, I'm often envious of you, the most beautiful man in the world. I'm, I am often, so I, at some point, I'm going to live as if I don't really believe I'm living in the middle of a gospel story. And the gospel is a story that is uh, present and trying to transform our stories. And so to tell my story faithfully doesn't just mean I'm going to tell it any way I want to. I'm going to tell it in light of this notion, in light of the gospel that says we live in a world where God is coming for us. He's always coming for us. And uh, what is it like for us to be pursued by a God who can't believe his good fortune that he gets to have relationship with us? And so I think that's also an element of this that, that's important because there are plenty of people who, who believe that they are telling their story truly when they say, you know, my, uh, my, my dad doesn't love me and he never has. 
and that's the end of the story for them. And like that's as true as it gets for them. There's there, there's no more additional faithfulness that we can add to it as, as far as they're concerned. But the gospel, right? Christian spiritual, the, the voice of Jesus would say, your dad may not have loved you, but I, your older brother, I love you so much, I won't even let death get in between us. And that's what we need to tell our stories more truly. And that in the in its essence is really what has happened between you and me. Yeah. You know, I, you, 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 when you talk about this idea of God is coming for us, that's a, that's a concept that um, can be hard, right? To, to, to believe, to feel, to understand. Yeah. But when Kurt is coming for me, I see God in that. I see, I've had really an embarrassment of riches when it comes to mentors and people that have, have been coming after me through my life in that way. And you being mm. certainly one of them. And, and it's in those moments where, you know, like you talked about some of the, uh, our conversations where we've shared sort of some of the uglier things about ourselves and you still stayed there. You didn't look at me with disgust and mm. walk out. And it's at those moments where I, I can feel God's mm. presence. I can mm. feel him mm. through you and through those relationships. Right. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's interesting. We, uh, I, have a, I have a phrase that I often use when I say to people, nothing about the world is ultimately real for us until we feel it in our bodies. Nothing is. And by, and by that, I don't, I don't mean that like, you know, quantum mechanics aren't real until we feel it. I don't mean that or, you know, linear algebra or any of those kinds of things where I'm not talking That's about just that. That's just what anymore. I was going to say that linear, right. linear, I can't even say it. So I wasn't going to say it. I take I, that back. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there is a sense in which like gravity is real when I fall right. and skin my knee. That's when it's real. And in the same way, I mean, I think this is, this is what the scriptures tell us, right? That we, that God formed a man out of the dust of the earth. And then he breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils and man became a living being. There's a certain sense when you, when you listen to that story, you're like, oh, there's, there's a particular way that he did that. And I don't know that it means like, that's always the way that it's done, but I, but I'm just aware that God starts with mud. God starts with the material world. He starts with these things that are common to all of us. And he then relationally like breathes his spirit into us and we become living beings. And we don't become a living being until both of those things are coming together. And that I think is interesting. It doesn't just say, well, and the, the, you know, he took his spirit and he had his spirit and he threw some mud up in the air at the spirit and the mud became animated, right? No, there's this sense which he, he starts with the body which is one of the things that we will eventually talk an awful lot about here, about why the mind is first an embodied process. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about being loved, when we talk about trauma, when we talk about all the number of things that we're gonna talk about over the course of this podcast, we will be quick to remind everyone that if I'm not sensing 
whatever it is that we're talking about in my physicality, it has not yet taken up full residence with me. And so you're right. There's a sense in which we could read the gospels. We could read a story about Jesus healing a blind guy in John chapter nine. But what I really want to know is what was it like for you to imagine being there on the side of the road when these cats approach this guy and Jesus, without asking any permission, once the disciples start this conversation, without asking any permission of the guy, he just like starts, you know, he spits on the ground, makes mud, slaps it on the guy's face. The guy's like, he's just minding his own business, right? And the next thing you know, whack, whack, there it is. I mean, you're like, who does this? I mean, this is one of those moments where God, once again, Jesus is like reenacting Genesis chapter two, this sense that he's gonna take mud and he's going to make something new for this dude. And I'm like this sense that if we're going to be loved, then it's going to be necessary for me to feel it in my solar plexus. I got to feel it in my face. I got to feel it in my chest. I got to have the sense and that I have to sense that it's happening because if I don't sense it, I'll just be working really, really hard to pretend that it's there when it's really not, which is why our relationship, why the relationships that we have with others by whom we're deeply known make all the difference in the world yeah. for you know helping us to be formed into these people of light, these people of love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. Yeah. At some point, I want to talk about, it doesn't have to be today, but at some point I want to talk about how do we, how do we, cultivate those kind of relationships because right. I know even for you and I, it wasn't the first time we met that we started bearing our souls to one another, right? It takes time and, you know, there's some work involved and, you know, I, I'm, I know I'm not alone in, in having shared things with people in the past where my trust was betrayed, right? Or right. where, you know, those kind of things happen. So I would like to, um, you know, talk about at some point, like, how do we develop those kind of relationships? And how do we, um, how do we nurture them and, and, you know, not scare people away from the, in the very beginning and all those right. things. Right, right, right. And, yeah. and we will, because I, I would want to, I want to, for our listeners to know, right from the start, this project of uh, becoming sons and daughters of God is really hard to do. Mm -hmm. This project of becoming bright light is really hard to do. And the whole notion of developing relationships, as you point out, often in the course of it will, you know, include moments when we are betrayed, moments when the things that we hope to have happen uh, either don't happen or we think they're going to, and then, you know, we get hurt and those hurts aren't repaired. And so I, I, I look forward to talking more about that in particular, right. because it's, uh, it's, it, it, is a, it is a beautiful task that is set before us, and it is uh, an extraordinarily difficult one. And even in that, even in those times where, it, you know, betrayal or, you know, something like that, that, that is part of the formation as well, right? Then we have to go and repair repair those fractures as best we can right yeah yeah we'll talk at some point i'm sure in yeah. more detail about this notion that 
part of what it means to uh, flourish, part of what it means to grow is to learn what it means to weather those kinds of ruptures, to repair ruptures. We, we know that from research that we see with um, you know, rat brains, there's a, this famous study that gets done where they, you know, the researchers took a group of rats and gave them everything that they wanted, kind of rat Disney world. And then you give this set of rats, uh, another set of rats, you know, tasks to do, and then you impair them along the way, right? You give them, you, you give them uh, rat Disney world, but then you take it away and you give them infection or you give them malnutrition or you deplete them of water or whatever. But every time you bring them back to what the other cohort of rats are experiencing, they, you bring them back to Disney world every single time. Then you give both cohorts uh, an experience of an overwhelming stress. And not surprisingly, the cohort that survives the overwhelming stress is the cohort that has been given multiple episodes of distress over time. Mm -hmm. But with each time, with those episodes of distress, they are brought back to a place of right. flourishing. Right. And, and then what's not so great for any of the rats is that when they're sacrificing, you look at their brains, you find that the rats that are in the cohort that were stressed, everything about their neural interconnections were thicker, the neural networks were more densely connected, there were more neurons and the neurons were bigger around. There's, there's clear neurobiological evidence that would indicate that even their behaviorally expressed resilience is reflected literally in the neural circuitry in their brain. That when we as humans repair ruptures, mm. our relationships actually become even more resilient and strong after the rupture is repaired than it was beforehand. And so the question is not, you know, am I ever going to have a relationship in which everything is perfect? No, I want a relationship in which I know that when a rupture happens, repair is going to follow. This is why we tell parents, look, your kids, we say like, look, the only way you can't screw up your kids is just don't ever have them. It's the only way you can't screw them up. And what kids then need, they don't need parents that are perfect. They need parents who are honest and parents who are willing to genuinely repair ruptures when parents are responsible for them. And kids then learn that life and joy and flourishing are not to be found primarily in the absence of suffering, in the absence of hardship, but literally can be discovered in the middle of that and despite that, because suffering, pain does not define who I am, but rather connection to someone who is always coming to find me, even in my suffering is what defines how my life flourishes. Wow. And that is, <laughs> that is being known, right? I mean, that's, that is being known. It really is. Wow. And I'm, I just think about our current state of affairs in our world. And I think, man, more than ever, do we need people who would be willing to do the work of allowing themselves to be known <sighs> and who are simultaneously seeking out others to give them the opportunity to be known right. and doing that, especially uh, with people with whom we perceive at first glance that we have great differences 
Um, but like has been said by many, you know, uh, those things that are most personal to us are universal, right? Uh, I may, I may have differences politically, differences religiously, theologically, and so forth and so on with others, but everybody knows what it's like to be ashamed. Yeah. Everybody knows what it's like to be connected. Everybody knows what it's like to be loved, forgiven. Mm. Everybody knows that. And it's some of those topics that I think that interpersonal neurobiology has some things to say to us. And so echo St. Paul's words when he talks about in the first chapter of Romans, where he says that, look, from the very beginning, God has used his creation to reveal to the world his nature and his power. And he never leaves himself without a witness. And so in this day when, you know, uh, even our sermons and our religious rhetoric uh, seems to be perhaps less able to capture people's attention, um, one way I think that God uh, can continue to speak to his people, and by his people, I mean everybody, is through the very neuroscience that is part of the world that he's created. Kurt, I think that's a great place for us to end our first episode of this Being Known podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've, we've given a, just a taste of what's to come. We'll be delving into all these subjects and and many more as we move forward. And I can't say enough how just honored I am to be here with you mm-hmm. and, um, wow. and how much I'm looking forward to the next time that we get to do this again together. Yeah, yeah right on. Me too, Pepper. I'm just, uh, I'm so grateful that uh, you uh, have, have wanted to do this. It's just a real, it's a real honor and it's a real um uh, you know, getting to do this with you is, uh, I imagine Jesus being in the room and winking at me. So just really grateful. He's winking at you because he's, the joke's on you. <laughs>